Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Storytelling is essential to the human experience. It's how we share our lives with friends and family and how we develop deeper connections. If you especially appreciate storytelling, you may well have encountered the moth, started 25 years ago in a tiny New York City apartment. The Moth has grown into nothing less than a storytelling phenomenon, and their platform has enabled countless people to tell their true personal stories. The Moth Radio Hour, heard on WABE Sundays at noon, is a showcase of stories from live moth events. And on the show, we hear the humanity of people being vulnerable, raw, funny, and above all else, honest. In celebration of the moth's 25th anniversary, they've released How to Tell a Story, a book that dives into their story development process. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently spoke with the artistic director of The Moth, Catherine Burns, and John Good, an Atlanta-based, Emmy-nominated author who's regularly a host of Moth Story Slams in our city. Here's Burns explaining how her time with The Moth began. I moved to New York City in 2000, and I had friends who were going. Like, at the time, it was a little bit underground. There was no radio show. Um, It was a live show that was almost exclusively in New York City. I went to my first moth event in the summer of 2000 and fell madly in love with it. And it just Mm -hmm. became one of these people that, you know, comes to every show, and I became a volunteer. I, I, I handed out programs, you know, anything I could do to help them. I eventually put my name in the hat at a story slam and actually was the last name picked and tied for first place to win. So then I was in the very first grand slam, which was terrifying, but so exciting. (laughs) Um, I then like got to know the two moth staff members at the time um, and became a volunteer in our community and education program, which we still have. So that's how at the end of 2001, when the moth's founding artistic director quit, I raised my hand and was hired first as a producer and then became the artistic director in late 2003 and have been it ever since. So and it's such a labor of love for me and everyone else. That's awesome. And as artistic director, what is your main role? So I'm the artistic lead of the company, which means that anything that happens at the moth artistically, whether it's the live events, a radio show, our books, you know, anything that the moth touches, I'm ultimately bottom line responsible for the quality of it. And I also lead the creative team in trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to keep that quality high, uh, which includes like what stories are there out there that haven't been told that need to be told, you know, who just put their name in the hat at a slam in, you know, Wisconsin, who might be the next star, you know, like just trying to constantly bubble up all of the ideas and create space for that. And also often when we do something new, I'm the lead person trying to figure out exactly how we're going to make it work, you know, working with the team. So it's really just the bottom line of all things artistic at the moth. And I'm also one of the radio hosts. 
That makes sense. And so speaking of doing new things, why did you and your team decide to write How to Tell a Story? Well, we thought about doing it for years. I mean, obviously, storytelling is one of the oldest art forms in the world. We talk about that in the book. But, you know, this sort of moth style storytelling where it's personal stories put on stage, being sort of acknowledged as an art form um, in this very specific way is something that really began in many ways with the moth back in 1997. And so we've spent years trying to figure out how to help people tell their stories. Thousands and thousands of people. We're up to 50,000 stories told now. Um, Oh my gosh. And so we've just learned a lot over the years. And so as we were coming to our 25th year, I mean, many of us have been around for a very long time. I mean, of the five authors of the book, I think the person who's been at the moth the least long has been with us for 14 years. Oh, that's so impressive. Yes. So there was a great desire for us to write down everything that we've learned and to write it in a way that wouldn't just be about people telling stories of the moth, hopefully, but would also be for somebody who wants to tell a really great story in a job interview, someone who wants to connect with their grandmother and try to, you know, tell her stories, ask her stories, someone who might have to give a eulogy, which is one of the hardest Mm. storytelling situations you can be in because you're telling a story about someone you've just lost and there's been no time to process and then you're there trying to represent them. So we also just want to represent how the moth is not just something that's about the people who work there. It's really an entire community. I mean, this art form has been discovered and built and crafted by thousands of people who have shown up with open hearts and vulnerability to participate. And so one of the things I love about the book is it's not just the five authors who were a part of it, but more than 220 people contributed either with quotes about storytelling or quotes from their own stories, you know, to be examples of how to tell a good story. And so my great hope is that this book really is what we meant it to be, which is a love letter from the entire Moth family to the world. Aww. And speaking of quotes, John, you're quoted in the book mm-hmm. as saying, stories are what turn friends into family. Would you elaborate on that thought? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that when we hear each other's stories, we discover that we are far more in common that we have differences that to the you know to the naked eye and as the world sometimes tries to convince us that we're this group of of strangers right with nothing in common but when you sit in the moth when you sit in that audience and you hear someone tell their story and you say oh wow either you know that's my story i know someone whose story that is or um i i have nothing to do with that story but it has hit me it has impacted me so deeply it brings people together and so i've seen night after night at the end of the night People from the audience will go up to the storytellers, people who they may share nothing in common with, you know, race, gender, uh, you know, economic circumstances. They share nothing in common and they stand there for 30 minutes after the show and they just talk to each other. Mm. And I think everyone just leaves with a better understanding of who that person is, who they are, you know, what it means to be in community and in relationship and that we can become family through these stories, regardless of our circumstance. Wow. So John, aside from being a Story Slam host, you're also an excellent storyteller. What are your earliest memories of storytelling? My earliest memories of storytelling in my life come from uh, my father. My father is just a a very, very funny (laughs) storytelling uh, guy. He was just, people would come to our house and just sit in our living room to hear my dad tell stories Mm -hmm. that he said, he said they were all true. It's, it's, it's questionable. It's questionable. But he would tell these stories and people just loved it. And so as I got older, um, I guess I kind of maybe picked up some of this from him. So at Thanksgiving, it would be a, a common occurrence for people to sit around and say, so what's going on with you, John? And I would just tell them stories and they would just they would be so into it. It was amazing to me. But I never thought of it as like a I don't know. Like I was young then. I don't I don't know if I thought of it as like even storytelling. I don't know what I thought I was. I was just talking. You know, I was like, oh, I'm just talking. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, but yeah, it's it's my earliest, earliest memories. My my dad, man, he was a he was something. Catherine, I've read that you have a similar story growing up in the South and listening to porch tales from family. Is that right? That's right. Especially um, my paternal grandmother. Um always told the most amazing stories. She told stories from way back in our family. And um, I would just beg her to tell them again and again. People sometimes, because the way we rehearse the stories, they're like, how 
do you ever get tired hearing the same story over and over? And I'm like, never. I would do anything to have my grandmother <laughs> sit, sitting next to me right now telling me the ones she's told me a thousand times, you know, one more time. Aww. So I definitely grew up in that tradition of, you know, Southern storytellers. That's lovely. Well, Catherine, you've guided hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many yeah. people through the process of sharing yeah. their lives on stage. What do you find most rewarding and most challenging about helping people develop their stories? My favorite part is when you're working with somebody and they start telling you the story one way and they're so sure about what the story meant to them. But as you dig into it with them and ask them questions and they start thinking about whatever they were talking about as a story, I love when somebody will suddenly have a total aha moment and realize that maybe the story means something different to them or something deeper. You know, it's just, it's such an honor to witness that when you're working with somebody. So, I mean, that's my favorite part. Um, also just seeing people feel confident. Like people are usually very nervous before, before they go on stage, sure. but there's something that seems so wonderful about somebody walking out on stage and feeling that love from the audience. You, we don't know what it is, but moth audiences are the greatest audience in the world. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're in Georgia or Kenya or Tajikistan, they just show up and just want you to be yourself. And there's just such a supportive energy coming from them. It's kind of the opposite of what sometimes you feel at a comedy club. And, mm. um, <laughs> and so I love seeing that person walk out there so nervous that like I'm actually monitoring them to make sure they don't just run away and jump in a cab or something <laughs> and take off. Um, and then walk out. And in a minute, they feel that love of the audience and they get going. And all of a sudden, they just light up and they're filled with joy and they kind of float off the stage. And most people say they'd be happy to turn right around and go back out and do it again oh, <laughs> once they've done it the first time. That. And so that's the most rewarding part. Um, the hardest part, I mean, the, there's many challenges part, but one is like when you're working with someone who feels like they don't have a story to tell, you know, and that they don't have the confidence in themselves trying to give it to them. You know, I've had this a few times where I'm trying to where somebody just has such a wonderful story and they just can't come around to seeing it. And so then they're not willing to share it because they don't think it's worth sharing. And that always breaks my heart. But I, always, I keep saying my perfect reader for this book is someone who picks up the book, who's interested in storytelling, but maybe thinks they don't have a story and ends the book realizing that they have more stories than they can possibly imagine and then dares to go out and tell one to someone, like even if it's just their best friend over dinner, like telling a story they've never told before. Well, you guys created a book that genuinely helps people do that with a step-by-step -step process. There are rules to moth storytelling. What are some of the rules that you guys play by? Well, one rule is there's a time limit, is all of the stories need to stick to a time limit. At the slams, it's five minutes, but on the main stage, it's, we think like 10 to 12. Um, and that's really just to force choices, you know, that people, if, like, Many stories can be told in 10 minutes, but if you go practice, it'll just immediately, we have a lot of experiences this come out at about 20. Um, and so it's really just, a, it's like a contract with the audience that everyone's just gonna take them a certain amount of time. Um, the stories have to be true. Now we always say true is remembered by the storytellers because of course truth is very subjective. Memory is very tricky. We write about it a lot in the book. Um, we're actually so obsessed with truth that we originally had two or three more chapters about truth. Our editor was like, ladies, like I'm not be able Cut, right, okay. Um, but so like a, a huge part of the cuts thing is us just right going on and on more about truth. But um, so they have to be true and they have to, it has to be your story. I mean, so many people get up and they wanna tell their grandfather's story or the story you know, of a loved one they have that maybe died and they wanna remember them. And that is actually well and good and fine but we always, I joke that we're very self-absorbed at the moth in the sense that we want you to be self-absorbed. So if you get up on stage, even if you're telling a story about your grandmother, we want it to be through the lens of your own experience and what you got out of this interaction and not just some, like we need you to have witnessed it and been a part of it. Right. John, what am I leaving out? You do this at the slams. On, the, <laughs> on the slam, at the slam, yeah. it's gotta be on the theme, whatever the right, theme of the night right. is. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's gotta be true. It's gotta be about you. It's gotta be on the theme. And it is a uh, timed and judged exercise at the slam. At the slam. Right, right. And do you guys have a rule about the microphone and touching the mic that might somehow relate to Run DMC? <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. So we've always, from the beginning, they wanted the, to keep the mic on the stand. And part of it is to differentiate it from stand-up, but also we just find it's a, a way to really focus the energy to have that mic on the stand. 
So years ago, we had um, Daryl McDaniel, who's like the, one of the founders of Run DMC, you know, um, telling the story. And yeah, I, we were a little intimidated. I mean, th this is a man who's just like a complete legend. <laughs> and he shows up and I just, I was really a new director at the time. I was pretty young and I could not bring myself to tell Daryl that he had to leave the mic in the stand. So he takes it off. I mean, there has never been a more aerobic telling of the story. I mean, he was squatting, he was standing up. It was like, so if you can use a video with him, you have a sense of what he was doing on that stage. Um, and it was wonderful, but it was, you know, a little distracting in its own way. But afterwards, he said to me, you know, Catherine, I, I see what you mean, how everyone else does it. And the next time I tell the story, I'm going to leave the mic in the stand. And we were like, what? You know, mic drop or like mic put back up. Anyway, we were like, this is unbelievable. And so ever since then, we never waver because our feeling is if a man who essentially helped create, you know, what we know is, I'm going to maybe say this wrong, but like the modern like hip hop movement, if like one of the founders of all of this, if he leaves the mic on the stand, then everyone else can too. So yeah, <laughs> and it's a great equalizer. I find it to be yeah. It just puts everyone on the same level playing field. Whether you've done, you know, whether you've been on stage a million times like a DMC, or whether it's your first time on stage, it just evens everything out. So that a seasoned performer who knows that you know he's got the thing, he's whipping the cord around, he's doing a thing. <laughs> And if you've never done it before, you might trip over the cord and fall yeah. down. You don't know. <laughs> right. So this keeps everyone just on the same level playing field. It's very I true. I like that. I like <laughs> that a lot. Well, Catherine, occasionally during the development process, I've read that the question needs to be asked, what is the story you're trying to tell in one sentence? So yes. tell me, how does this exercise help storytellers? It helps people focus. I mean, because like most stories that you're going to tell in 10 minutes could be probably an hour long story, you know, if you just included every bit of detail. And so part of the time limit is it forces you to make choices and to focus it. And so we find that the one sentence can help you decide what the story is most about for you. Usually stories start out a little bit longer and you're trying to cut them down, but you make sure that what remains all supports what you're most trying to say. It's, it's intimidating to like start out with the one sentence. So you don't want to, to start there. But as you start working on it, there's always that point where it kind of bloats out a little bit. I used to have, I was in marching band in high school and my band director would say, you know, that sometimes you have to get better worse before you get better, better. So that's true with the moth too, <laughs> that sometimes things just like expand out a little bit. But in that process of trying to trim it down and making it really sing, you want to make sure that, you know, what you're most trying to say comes through and not clutter it with, you know, there's just only so many things that you can get into a 10 minute story. Yeah, especially that if you want to tell sense. it like concisely in a way that people can digest it, you know, in a way that it like, it like moves well. Yeah, when you come to an event, especially if you come to like the story slam here in Atlanta, you'll hear the stories that move well and then they get to the end. And when they get to the end, you feel it. When they get to the end, the whole room jumps up and claps because like, wow, what a, what a ride. And then you hear the stories where the person hasn't really thought it through and it meanders. And then it'll be like, yeah. And so, you know, that's that. Yeah. And then, you know, you're like, oh, yeah. Well. So it's good. It's good to have like your one line, you you know, focus you in on definitely the, the, the direction of the story. That makes sense. So let's talk about these slams a little more in the section that you guys lovingly call going from page to stage. Yes. Why mm -hmm. do you encourage people to be familiar with their material instead of memorizing their material? Well, memorization is tough. It's something I particularly really discourage, but we all do. The problem with memorization is that when you're so married to the page, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of people who want to memorize are, are writers because they're so married to their words. Mm. And when you're too married to your words, there's a chance that you're going to get up on stage and like two things could happen. One that we see all the time is that instead of being present on stage with the audience, the person is actually picturing the sheet of paper. I actually call this, um, I borrowed this from our, one of our former artistic directors, head in the desk drawer syndrome. We ended up cutting from the book because all my fellow authors out argued that it was too confusing, which I can understand. But the idea is that you're standing <laughs> on stage and you're not actually present in your body. You're picturing 
the sheet of paper that's maybe at home in your desk drawer that has the written out version or in your purse and you're just going down the page and what that prevents is you from actually being present and alive at the moment in front of the audience and like often when people do this like they talk right over applause breaks and things like that for instance mm. because they're just so trying to get through it that they're not paying attention to the reaction they're getting from the audience whereas if you just memorize bullet points and kind of know where you're going that allows you to just tell it a little bit differently every time and be really present in it in a way that I think is so much more fun as a teller because it also might be like sometimes somebody will improv some little thing it'll be like the greatest moment of the story just because they're really present and they're kind of reacting off the energy of the audience a little bit and you have that freedom if you have the out you know sort of an outline you know the beats we might say in your head um, the other reason not to memorize is because the, the biggest fear every storyteller has is they're going to blank and forget their story. And that's happened twice at the moth in my time. I've heard there was one time before and wow. every single time the person had memorized. And because the problem is mm. if you've memorized it, you can forget it versus if you just have the bullet points, it's your story and you kind of know, you can picture in your head going from here to here. So, so that's like the reason we don't like to memorize, but uh, we do have you suggest memorizing two things though. One is your first line and the other is your last line. And the reason to memorize your first line is because when you start out, you'll be very nervous and it's just so reassuring to know exactly where you're gonna start before you take off. And then we have found again and again, that if you don't memorize your last line, you run the risk of doing what some of our greatest raconteurs did in the early days. They would get to the end of their story and kind of like what John was saying a minute ago, they'll say, well, I guess that's my story and just wander <laughs> off the stage. We'd be like, no, you want to land your story like a gymnast, you know, snap at the Olympics. So, you know, but otherwise, you know, we really encourage people to get away from the memorization. Although some people still insist. That's a great storyteller, Ruby Cooper. I, I, mm. Ruby Cooper has this story that she's, I, I may have, I, I may have seen her tell it on stage 10 times. She has never told that story the same way twice. Amen. It is, it's amazing <laughs> to me. I love it. She, she tells it different in rehearsal. She tells it different on stage, <laughs> but she always this lands it because she'll say when I'm up there, I'm just remembering, like, right. I'm just remembering it. I'm just telling you the story as I remember it. And every time I remember it, I, I remember it a little differently, but it's That's always just the most excellent story. Well, for storytellers that aren't quite as seasoned as Ruby, John, do you have any advice for people who, you know, have to deal with stage fright? Yeah, I tell anyone who comes to the moth, it's much like what Catherine was saying. I'm like, everyone here is here to love you in this moth audience. Mm. Um, they're here to to encourage you, to lift you up. All they want to do is see you do your best. So uh, we did a moth in Athens, Georgia, and this delightful young lady came up. And she was, I mean, she was shaking. She was shaking, shaking. And she was like, I'm so scared. And I said, if you want to, I'll sit in the front. Usually I sit to the side. I said, I'll sit in the front. You can tell it to me if you'd like to. And she was like, I'd like that. So I sat in the front and she just kind of told it to me and looked about. And then I came up afterwards and she burst into tears. She was so happy that she had done it. And the mm. crowd just gave her all the love in the world. And, and she won. She won that oh. night. <laughs> she yes. won. It was her first time ever telling the story. The story was excellent and she won. And I, so I tell people at the moth, it's like how genuine you are with your story. That's what comes through. So I've seen people super practiced and they lose to someone who's super genuine. Yep. So I'm like, bring your genuine story, bring yourself, you know, don't, don't give us who you think we want to see. Give us you. And I'm telling you, you, you cannot lose. You can't lose. Even if Amen. you don't win, you can't lose. Yeah. As long as you're authentic, you got it covered. Yeah. Absolutely. I've seen so many first time people win in Atlanta, like at least three times a person has walked in and it, especially in Atlanta, I've seen uh, three people have walked in. They didn't even know what it was. They just, <laughs> they were like, oh, they're telling stories. No. So they sign up. And then I say, oh, it's a competition. They're like, oh, I didn't know. I said, oh, there's a theme. They're like, oh, I didn't know. And then, <laughs> then they they go out, they stand out there in that lobby for 15 minutes. They're like, okay, I've got it. I've got a story. And I, I've seen three times they've won. That person has won. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's it. impressive. I've definitely seen it. it here too. Yeah. I love it. That is so impressive. So we have some events coming up in Atlanta soon. There is the theme of happy 
on August 22nd, and then a theme of juggling or how to juggle different things in your life on September 5th. John, will you be hosting both of those? I will be hosting both of those. Um, we just had one that was great. So it's a, it's a ball. I encourage everyone to come out. We're down at Theatrical Outfit. And um, it, it's just the time. Like, it's hard to describe. I, I, I was talking to a friend who she said, when you told me about it, I don't think you you described it well enough. And I was like, I don't know how to describe it. I said, how would you describe it? And she said, to be honest with you, I probably would describe it. I would have described it the way you described it, which is not very good. She said, it's like, you got to come see it. She said, you got to come see it. I said, I know, that's what I tell everyone. I was like, you got to come see it. I said, it will change your life. Catherine, I wanted to ask you one final question. I feel like you touched on it a couple of times in very humorous ways. But what was it like having so many co-collaborators on this book? Oh, my. It's It was people thought we were nuts you know that we lost our mind every writer i know when i said we were five of us writing together they were like that sounds like a nightmare but honestly we had such a wonderful time maybe we, we had no idea when we signed the book contract that we were going to be writing this book over zoom during the middle oh. of you know at the at times of the epicenter of a global pandemic obviously but it really became a joyful thing where when so many people were so isolated i mean we've really been reflecting on this just recently Every morning at 8 a.m., I got to log in and I was at Meg's house. I was at Jennifer's house. I was at Sarah's house. You know, I was at Kate's house. And we really lived, our, you know, we were at least on Zoom together four hours a day. But I think we had a record day where we were on like 14 hours. And it was oh. two o'clock in the morning for Meg. Meg lives in Sweden. She married a Swede. So wow. she's, and at the time, Sarah Janess was driving masks through like California. So it would be literally dawn at Joshua Tree on Sarah's computer. And then Meg, you know, at nighttime in Sweden in the middle of the winter would be with the sun setting behind her. Um, but we, I think in the end, we feel like now what a gift it was that we had all of this time together doing it. Definitely like it got tricky at times. You know, there were just huge questions. And it turns out we say things in different ways. I mean, I think we went into the book thinking that we all do everything the same way. And then we discovered that we actually don't in some ways. So like trying to figure out common language and trying to figure out also just the order and how to tell our own story. But in the end, you know, it was just, it was such a joyful collaboration. I mean, one of the things we were pr proudest of is that we first gave the show to, uh, when we first gave the book draft to Matt, our editor at Crown, who's wonderful. He couldn't tell who had written what part. And we we're like, wow, mm. that's our mind meld after all of these years, you know, that it sounds like one voice, even though, we really wrote it all individually. And then we kind of put it together in a big, you know, long string and then edited it over many years. But I think it was, it was the only way to do it. For many years, we thought that maybe one of us would do it. But when, when push came to shove, we realized it was just something that it was not any one of our knowledge. In fact, it wasn't any, it, it wasn't just the five of us. It wasn't our collective knowledge. It was the knowledge of an entire community, as I mentioned in the beginning. And what a you know, what an honor that we got to be the ones to help gather that and put it together. And so I think that if it worked with the five of us, that's why. It's because we were all there seeing our roles as serving a, a greater good, which is, you know, representing the moth community in this new space. Catherine Burns, Artistic Director for The Moth, with John Good, Atlanta author and host of Local Moth Story Slam. More information about the new book from The Moth, How to Tell a Story, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix for this month's edition of Punk Black to Go, Amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon, Punk Black. And he joins us monthly to highlight artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Greetings, my friends. This is City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the rock, art, cosplay, and neural communities. Each month, I'll be bringing you bands that I love from the Punk Black scene. But before we get into that, let's start with another <laughs> crazy Punk Black adventure. So for this month's story, let's go with a continuation or a sequel to last month's story, which started with me and NOLA. My first time on NOLA, it was complete chaos. If you listen to it, go to the WAB website. Crazy ending. But for this month, let's do a sequel of that, since it was our second time doing music in NOLA, but this time throwing our own festival is the Punk Black Festival. Um, so the first day went off without a hitch, was amazing. Great vibes, great music. Bands, audience, the tea. The tea was amazing. Queen and Contra makes really, really great tea. So first day, off without a hitch, completely. We're groovy. But the second day. So the second day got a little crazy. Showed up to Gaza Gaza. Gaza Gaza, awesome venue in a college town. Set everything up. Bands got, you know, most of the bands got there. Merch is good. Everyone's groovy. Everyone's feeling groovy. We were just waiting to open doors. Sound person, Lindsay, comes up to me. And shout out to Lindsay because Lindsay was amazing for this entire process, this entire ordeal. They were super, super amazing. So shout out to them. Lindsay came, comes up to me and says, hey, the bathrooms are, you know, the bathrooms are sort of messed up or they're broken or they need to get fixed or whatever. So I'm like, OK, what's going on? Can you fix it? They said we're trying. But if they can't do it, the show's going to have to be canceled. So you can imagine we were all a little worried. So cutting that story short, <laughs> the show ends up getting canceled at Gaza Gaza. Luckily, Lindsay, again, being completely amazing, set us up with another show at Saturn Bar, which was 20 minutes away. It still went off really, really well. The band showed up. Some of the audience showed up. You know, like, it's hard in translation, especially, like, when you switch areas and they're 20 minutes away. New Orleans, like, small. So, like, if you're 20 minutes away, you're, like, out of New Orleans sometimes, at least compared to Atlanta. I was actually really surprised and uh, really impressed that people moved from one venue to another. I thought that was awesome. Everybody was amazing. Bands kicked butt, the uh, the venue staff kicked butt, we kicked butt. <laughs> that was our New Orleans show. At least it had a good ending, unlike the last story. Again, you got to check it out on WB. But let's get into some bands. As a perfect segue for our New Orleans story, let's start with Sexy Dex in the Fresh. <laughs> they combine genres of music, including rock, synthwave, disco, funk, and probably some other genres that music aficionados will point out. The main point is that the band is amazing. I hope it gets you pumped to dance, fight your depression, and finally DM your crush. Here's a sample of this song, Play Me Birdie. That was a sample of Play Me Birdie. Sexy Dex and the Fresh can be found on Instagram at s.d.t.f. So just each one of their, the letters of their name, Sexy Dex and the Fresh. Next up, we have Super Kaze. Super Kaze makes the kind of music you'd bump if you were riding a cloud or honestly, any sort of fantastical form of transportation. Their music falls into sort of the indie, almost pop category, and I really dig it. They're actually playing in Seattle next month for our Punk Black Fest, and they'll probably be taking the crowd on some super, super fantastical journey. So 
honestly think they're a great band to get your day started. Sort of chill and really, really high energy. So here's a sample of their song, Head in the Sand. That was a sample of Head in the Sand by Super Kaze. Super Kaze can be found on Instagram at super, S-U-P-E-R, Kaze, C-O-Z-E. Now it's time for some metal <laughs> with Cinnamon Babe. Or is it hard rock? Either way, it's heavy and I love it. Cinnamon Babe encompasses all the super amazing and key ingredients of making a dope hard rock slash metal song. Amazing vocals, awesome lyrics, groovy message, excellent musicianship, and a completely dope aesthetic. Her music is made for battle, mosh pits, and defeating the patriarchy. Honestly, if this song doesn't get you going, you may need to check your pulse, seriously. Here's a sample of the song, Pure O. That was a sample of Pure O by Cinnamon Babe. Cinnamon Babe can be found on Instagram at cinnamon, S-I-N-N-A-M-O-N, Babe, B-A-B-E. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the bands mentioned today is available on wab.org slash citylights and, of course, punkblock.com. For WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series, Punk Black To Go. More information about the bands Vaughn mentioned today is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Atlanta food maven Sky Estroff takes us on a foodie road trip, amplifying Atlanta This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Connecting people through food is a lifelong goal for Atlanta Sky Estroff. In her new TV show, Foodie Road Trip, she goes from city to city, sharing the stories of Georgia's hidden gems and local restaurants. The six-episode series is available to stream now on several platforms, and the host joins us to talk about her show. Sky Estroff, welcome to City Light. Thank you so much, Lois. That was a wonderful and warm intro. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm curious to know where your love of food began. I would say probably when I took my first bite, but (laughs) (laughs) I've always just learned my way through food. Like that was my method of learning my whole life was tasting. And I always gravitated towards different cuisine types and learning my family's recipes. And then I went on through school. I took nutrition in high school. And then I was a dietetics major in college and took on jobs all about food after college. So food has really guided my life's trajectory in a way. I'm curious about dietetics, your study at UGA. What is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? That is a great and informative question because a lot of people get this confused. So when I went to school for dietetics, I was on the path to become a registered dietitian, which now 
in order to get those credentials, not only do you have to do like pretty much like a residency and then pass that exam or a whole like board of exams to become one. But now you also have to complete a master's degree too. So it's a really intensive process because it's really learning about medical processes in your body and food connected to how your body functions. A nutritionist requires less credentials and it's a more flexible term. So Technically, with my degree, I am a quote unquote nutritionist, but nutritionist is not a profession that is able to practice in every state. And Georgia is a state that does not accept that as a credential, but it's gotten so cloudy over the years too. So it's a really good question. Well, it's very important to know the difference then. Um, those credentials are not taken lightly. Yes. Sky, where in Georgia did you grow up? I grew up in Alpharetta, Georgia. So one of the featured towns in season one of Foodie Road Trip, which is actually, that's very behind the scenes knowledge because only the real people that listen to City Lights with Lois are going to understand <laughs> all of these things. But um, I grew up in Alpharetta my whole life, and I went to Chattahoochee High School and then went on to the University of Georgia from there. All right. So you are Georgia born, bred, and buttered. <laughs> How did the idea of Foodie Road Trip come about? Well, this is something that's been stirring in my brain since elementary school, I would say. I have really been obsessed with all things food and food TV. And I remember when I was in, I believe, fourth grade, we were told to do a DIY project for our class to present something with steps. And most people like chopped a wood block or, you know, did something very simple, built a Lego set. I decided to write a script for my own TV show where I locked Emeril Lagasse in a closet and took over <laughs> his show for the day. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yes. At what, nine, nine or 10 years old? Yes, yes. And I just felt that was entirely appropriate. My parents still have the script saved. And I just always visioned me being able to connect with a wider audience through food. Maybe I don't need to lock anybody in a closet anymore. I mean, that was fictional with Emeril, but I really, I loved watching him. I loved all of the catchphrases of BAM and stuff. And I also, that day, instead of just going off of my performative script, I, I did make a French apple tort for my class. La la. Yes. So I was just always wanting to make pretty things and make people surprised and delighted through food. Mm. Now, gosh, road food, <laughs> the concept is not new. But it has become so popular. I don't know if you were aware of a couple, maybe back in the 80s, they started Jane and Michael Stern. They used to have a feature in the New Yorker magazine, and then Lynn Rosetto Casper took them on when she created Splendid Table. She would have them on. And, and they went across the country, stopping in places that were not glamorous, were not elitist, but just delicious. And they were taking away the formality and, if I dare say, some of the snobbery connected with food. I'm curious about how foodie road trip differs from other road food shows such as diners, drive-ins, and dives. I think that you've hit a nail on the head about taking food as something that doesn't have to have that layer of pretension and snobbery, as you said, with it. I think that's a huge part of the food culture, probably always, but especially right now. And 
I want to see food as something that everybody feels that they can approach and everybody feels a connection to and doesn't shy away from because food, as I've said, is like how I've learned and how I want people to come together and not feel intimidated by it. Uh, for Foodie Road Trip, our show is different than others that I've come across for a couple of reasons. One is not only are we going to the towns and talking to the restaurant owners and chefs and hosts and managers and everybody behind the scenes in each restaurant, but we're also going to this really cool kitchen space actually filmed out of Norcross and other behind the scenes knowledge for you. It's called Premier Food Service Group. So we go there and film these recipes, rest stop recipes with special guests. And I think those are a really cool way to break up the segments and have something light and bright and something to take home for the viewers too, that they can follow along with these really fun refreshments and recipes with these special guests. So that's one way that we're a little bit different, but I think it's also the uniqueness of my background and my connection to small towns is really something that sets it apart too, because I, something else I'm just unveiling for you here is that um, Vadeya, Georgia, you know, the sweet onion city, that's where my grandparents live. And I have spent a lot of time in my life. And that's really what inspired this whole concept too, is that nobody I grew up with, even though I was just three hours away in Alpharetta, Georgia, understood that small town mentality and understood what a restaurant meant to a town, that this watering hole for people actually made everybody sit down together when they normally wouldn't cross paths in their day-to-day -day life. So I really, I think that I, my lens for it is a little bit different because it's so personal to me. Mm -hmm. And then also separating it with the rest stop recipes gives it a little something different as well. In fact, Vidalia, Georgia is the place you highlight in the first episode of Foodie Road Trip. And you have a rest stop refreshment segment with our friend of the show, Merritt Davis, I call her the diva of delicious. <laughs> I love that. What did Mara help you make? Yes, Mara helped me, if I memorize this correctly for episode one, I think we made red wine slushies, which was oh. really, really fun. She was ready to come help me with that rest stop refreshment. <laughs> and we also made sweet and savory pecans, roasted pecans. Yum. Yes. Had to ode to pecans of Georgia, but we definitely had a good time. And I made sure that there was something with a little cocktail element for her to enjoy as well. In another episode, you have a segment of rest up recipes. And I'm wondering why you feel it especially important to highlight Southern recipes in this show and teach viewers how to make those recipes? For me, it's really a point where I feel so comfortable in the kitchen and I feel like the best version of myself there. And so I want to showcase that because when I have my best energy, it spreads. I think, I think for anybody that's doing what they want to do when you're feeling your best, then it shines to other people and makes them feel good and happy. So I think that's really why I wanted to integrate it into the show. It's also because I want to show that Southern cuisine is not just in one form. There's many different ways to approach it and that many different people help add to what those recipes are. So as Mara is one of our guests, as you know, the delicious Steva as she is, that's a great example of somebody connected in food. But we also have Alana Richards, who is a farmer in Georgia, who helps talk about Georgia produce and how things are grown. And 
We also have Eating with Erica, who's an influencer in the food space. So we're seeing food approached in the different lenses that we see it. And I just, I think that sharing that in a happy, light, bright way, and in a way that everybody can feel the excitement around is really important. And it's just so fun. Lois, if you want to come on for season two, you're more than welcome. (gasps) Oh, goodness, would I love it. I would love it. Could we do something chocolate? Uh, Yes, I am self-pronounced a chocoholic, so I am with you for that. Sky Estraw, food expert and host of Foodie Road Trip. Information about where to stream this series is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Award-winning Lego artist Sean Kenny tells us about his exhibition Nature Pop on view now at Zoo Atlanta. Plus, City Light senior producer Kim Droves tries her best not to run off and join the circus when she speaks with the performers behind Circus Vasquez. The troupe has pitched their tent at Plaza Fiesta on Buford Highway through the end of the month. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.